Hello and welcome to Lay Film. Uh, I'm Patrick, one of your hosts, and joining me today is Kevin, Richie, and uh, today was uh, my film pick. And sadly, we're absent temporarily. Uh, Tyler, our fourth host, but I'll be sure to pester him for uh, his opinion at the film because I picked this one. Uh, and the film I picked is Ghost in the Shell Innocence. I think it's uh, 2004, if I'm correct. Yeah, Japanese anime from Mamoru Oshii again. And uh, yeah, this is the sequel to your other pick, Ghost in the Shell 1995, right? Mm-hmm. Which feels like a lifetime ago. And yeah, it's just the... Uh, Okay, it's a sequel to that film, and then, uh, yeah, like the first film, it takes inspirations from the original manga. But uh, again, Mamoru Oshii really injects his own perspective and uniqueness to the whole story. I read that it was non-canon, or like, he doesn't consider it like a true follow-up from what I read online. Maybe? I don't know, because Ghost in the Shell is like a franchise, and I think Oshi only does two or maybe three of them, and then I think he has like writing credits. He's not like the head director of uh, any of the four TV series I think there is now, or the uh, remake, live action, or even the original manga was completely made by someone else. So yeah, it's like a, it's an institution and these, uh, I think there's three films with Oshi that are kind of his crafts, but I'm surprised that to hear that for sure. One thing that uh, surprised me about it was that, like, I mean, because Pat, you you got me into Oshi. Um, I've only seen a handful of his movies. Um, aside from the original Ghost in the Shell, Angel's Egg blew my mind, especially in terms of visual storytelling. And also just art direction alone, it really helped me understand just how mythological a story could be in terms of its setting and tone with little to no dialogue. And after watching that movie, I started looking into the Jinro series and, um, and then you eventually put me on to this movie and it was really strange watching this sequel because I feel like with Oshi, he has a very specific um, specific note that he's going for with each of his movies. And I felt like even watching it again, it felt strange watching a sequel, you know, a, a continuation of this completely um, deconstruction, but also reconstruction of the original and i don't know like it's, it's crazy to think that he was able to expand upon these ideas and everything while also completely tearing apart the original because it's like how do you how do you come up with a sequel for a groundbreaking film like ghost in the shell Yeah, it's that's yeah, it's one of the great 
one of the reasons I love this movie and like him as a creator. Cause yeah, he just, he, he's, it's like the sequel. There's a through line with the first movie, but it's like, it's its own thing completely is what it feels like. It feels like a, an anthology, even though it's directly connected, it feels like this is just another story in that universe. And the universe is just so interesting. And it feels almost, I feel it's, uh, like a little Nostradamus like got a lot of stuff in this and all that is like very predictive I think of a maybe I'm being pessimistic but of a stuff to come in our own lifetimes which I hope not mm-hmm. but yeah just for a brief summary uh, the film starts with uh, the secondary protagonist from the first film uh, Bato I think he's a Japanese-American former soldier who is uh, on an anti-terrorist task force for the Japanese government in the year 2032. And uh, yeah, he just arrives at a crime scene where a domestic robot uh, has recently gone on a killing spree, killing its owner. And then I believe two police officers and is hiding out in an alley. And he's like the muscle called in to figure out what's going on. And that leads to this whole investigation and then, uh, yeah, intrigue grows from there. So, what were your guys? Uh, I like. I know Kevin. I've you've seen this before. I want to say that this was my third time watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Richie, yeah. is this your first? Yeah, this is my first time. Uh, you introduced Ghost in the Shell to me. I've heard of. The only times I've heard of Ghost in the Shell were like the anime series. And I would kind of watch it in passing when it was on late at night on Adult Swim. But I never really got into them at the time. So you were the one who introduced me to the first film and then now this one. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a bit hesitant or a bit like cautious when it comes to watching this one because I I did notice that the major wasn't going to be the uh, what's it called headlining this film so I was like oh okay so it's going to be a little different from the first one and I really liked her character in the first film so it was a bit um, intriguing to see that we get to follow Bato and I actually end up really liking him a lot in this film. Um, we get more character development for sure. Uh, I think the first film had a lower budget, but you can tell in this film they added like way more effects and like it felt very 3D like. And it was kind of cool visually. Yeah. Um, I, I also had held those same sentiments too when I first watched this movie and I even going back to the original I, I saw the original in theaters um, I want to say last year and that time around that I was watching it I was really focused on on Bato's character and he kind of hangs like a like a cloud in that movie like he's kind of on his own. Like you can sense like a, a 
an air of mystery to him, even though he has like a very alluring set of characteristics to him. And he definitely carries this movie in a very unique way. There's there's only like tiny, tiny hints of um, his personal life at home. But those tiny hints really seal the deal on on who he is as a character to me. And I this this movie is so dense and so it I feel like each one of Oshi's movie is is esoteric in its own right, where you have to give it multiple viewings to understand all of the aspects that he is trying to incorporate into them because this when i first watched this it felt like a like a philosophy lecture that was like being delivered by like graduate students and i had no idea how to grasp any <laughs> like it feels like it's going like a hundred miles an hour right from the very get-go in terms of dialogue and uh exchange of ideas and so each time that I'm watching it, I'm trying to deconstruct like a, or I guess process another layer to it. And this time around, I was really focusing on the relationship or the, or the, the ripples of Matoko's and Bato's relationship in the first movie and trying to understand how it weighs upon Bato. And it was very fascinating to also look into Matoko's role in this movie because she's she's like so distant from it but also so ingrained in it from the very get-go um just by looking at the signs of it all and I read like a short little excerpt about somebody was asking Oshi what this movie was about and he was saying, oh, well, the narrative, it doesn't even matter. It's its more so about it's a love story between Matoko and Bato. And that really gave me a unique perspective on it this time around. And one that I finally feel like I'm starting to grasp all of the all of the themes and motifs that are in this movie. And I feel like it's such a it's like the other side of the coin for for the original ghost in the show like they're they both coexist with one another and it's crazy to think that he came back to it like almost a decade later uh to continue the story because he felt like it wasn't finished and to me i feel like if anyone has seen ghost in the show or has uh has um the desire to watch it you definitely need to watch this as a it's it's a companion piece like you have to watch both of them in order to understand the dynamic that Oshi's trying to get at with these characters the setting the world the ideas because they just reflect each other so well yeah one of the hop on that with as uh, something that you said really jumped out at me is the uh it's like the other side of the coin and yeah on this viewing of innocence i think it's like again my third or fourth time as well but uh yeah this one feels like the first movie in 95 it's like a a singular exploration into the self or what it means to be 
an entity or a soul or spirit in a body and what any of that means. And then it flirts with transcending that through like science fiction, cyberpunk, all the other stuff. And then uh, watching this one, a big through line I found was like, it's about literally everything outside of the individual. And that's why that when you said that remark from Oshi where it's, it's about a Bato's and a Matoko's relationship or love. And yeah, you saying that made me think like, oh, that, yeah, that the reason that final scene that I don't want to spoil yet hits so hard. Like I, I did watch that like a hundred times probably after I first watched the movie because <laughs> I just love it so much. But like that, that singular scene towards the end, like encapsulates like the reasons this film is like so philosophy heavy. Uh, there's there's emphasis on architecture, architecture, uh, corporations, criminal underground, all these structures and creations of like communal existence. And like, yeah, like the it, it feels like the whole film's like exploring everything outside of the self and how it interconnects with each other and how all of us are connected, like three characters drop the same philosophy line at different points in the movie, I believe. Uh, and yeah, it's just this time I, I got like a, I felt like a exploration into the outside world and Bato's like a cold kind of disassociated from it, but fully aware of how it works and its intricacies. And the final thing for him is the final relationship he cares the most about and how that resolves in the film. And yeah, it, the, I love the plot of this, the, like the through line. But yeah, I could see that final scene is the true plot of the film, like Oshi said. And it's it's weird too because it it takes place a few years after the disappearance of the major uh, major Matoko, and um, it's like you can sense that each of the characters has grown a bit in age as well, obviously, but they also give the tiniest of a uh, of hints to that and i mean for instance with to with togusa uh one of the least cybernetically enhanced members of the section 9 crew which is the crew that's called in to investigate this series of events to determine if they need to engage with it fully um you can tell that togusa is very leery of becoming um Bato's partner in this investigation because he he understands how their group works which is very like they have a lot of military training and especially when it comes to um cybernetic security and also tactical uh in tactical com well, combat engagement and he was and I was reading a little bit on his background and he came from a police unit, I want to say. Like, he's the only member to that didn't receive military training, so mm -hmm. he's always doubting his abilities. And when called upon to join Bato in this investigation, he, he he's very hesitant about it because he has a family. He has a daughter. He has a wife. And he understands that with each engagement that Bato places himself in, it's like there is no gray area. It's completely black and white in terms of how he deals with it. 
and he's trying to like stress the importance of hey like we should that this should be our last resort is utilizing you know violence uh and bato says okay i'll try not to do that and like you could just see the immediate regret on a uh, togusa because he doesn't want to be killed in the line of duty um and even bato makes a bunch of remarks saying how there's not many uh operatives like himself or togusa or anyone else in the section 9 crew um how they're kind of few uh and numbered and also dying and so that's why they're being called in to handle this this investigation because nobody else can do it and i don't know i thought that that was like an interesting layer that was placed in the narrative because it seems like such a simple concept but it's just executed so so well yeah i think even that even that thing it's also is like the shadow or the uh it's kind of like the sequel phenomenon where like there's characters who reference not the first movie but like the main character from the first movie but they're not present for a majority of this this movie yeah but it's like a somber they're like a tertiary protagonist they're like a like this background presence yeah like kevin was saying like it's the old squad that like she literally assembled in the first movie and then yeah in the first movie there's a bit where togus is talking to her about like why me i'm a cop i'm not like a militarized robot killing machine and then she explains it from like the individual like you're an antibody we don't want to all be like killer you know militarized stuff because then people can exploit our one-mindedness we need diversity biodiversity and other stuff so oh, it's like a survival thing for us and you're honest and then in this movie we see characters just reference her without like dropping the name i think maybe they do but yeah like i think I they think say the old, like the major or something yeah like the chief the reason the chief is pursuing the investigation of the domestic robots that are killing the owners is because like it, there's a there's something fishy about it and Matoka would investigate that or push for it to be investigated because she would feel like there's something being covered up here. So that's why the chief is pushing the team to figure it out. And then he partners Togusa and Bato up together. He remarks that uh, the major chose Togusa by herself or like, I think she like vocally supported him versus no one else. And that's why they're teamed up and... I forget the character's name now. Damn it. <laughs> but like the third hacker crew. Or the third hacker. Oh, is that Ishi Ishikawa? Yeah, Ishikawa. Yeah, he shows up again. And yeah, he's like also... The the anime goes more in the detail. Like the whole team is literally assembled by that character. And this film feels like everyone's simultaneously missing that character. Which is... It's genius for a sequel where you may want the main character to return. Because you feel that as like an audience member. Like, oh man, where's the, where's my favorite protagonist? Yeah, I was certainly missing that when I watched it, especially as a first time viewer. And if I were to watch that film when it had come out and then nine years later, I'm watching 
you know, the sequel in theaters that would kind of throw me off. And the fact that like they didn't forget about her made me feel relieved and that she is like still a part of the story. And it was brought up that it was more of a love story between the major and Bato. And I was just thinking like, well, I hope there's like a director's cut somewhere because I'd love to see more of that, I guess. I didn't really feel that on my first time viewing, but perhaps like like you said, Pat and Kevin, like you guys watched it multiple times. You had seen that ending many, many times. Um, I don't really get that sentiment yet. But then again, like a lot of the, uh, I guess, philosophical like meanderings sprinkled throughout like it flew over my head and I didn't really get a lot of it so I felt like the intro the introduction to Tagusa was um implemented uh very naturally because I felt more drawn to his character because I'm just like I'm on his side when he's like I don't even know what you are talking about like what does this even mean um yeah, within that first like 15, 20 minutes, we get that, you know, philosophical lecture and we get quotes from like these literary texts and like, you know, these famous figures. Um, yeah, just like about like the meaning of life and, you know, what does it mean to have a soul? It really, uh, it was really hard to grasp. I would have to say, I can't say like I got everything in my first try. So, and the same with the first film, it's like, I would need to revisit both of these films and it would be a treat to like watch them back to back again sometime soon to get everything. But, um, yeah, aside from that, I really, yeah, I really enjoyed like some of the action sequences and yeah, the interaction between Togusa and Bato, like I love how different they both are from each other and how Togusa is clearly not the this militaristic like combatant like Bato is. Bato's just ready for action. He's like <laughs> he's just gonna go in there. He doesn't even consult with him. He's just ready to like go um gung ho or Togusa's like the family man and yeah. I just, yeah, I really like that dynamic. Yeah, I think um, there's the, speaking on that dynamic between them, I I love how the balance of humanity for them both is very different as well. Um, there's this one thing that I was reading on, um, uh, regarding this movie, and apparently in the trailer, uh, there's a quotation that says, regarding Bato, the only remnants left of his humanity encased inside a titanium skull shell are traces of his brain and the memories of a woman called Matoko Kusanagi. And I think that that's just so crazy to me because, um, I mean, which, which led me down like a rabbit hole of like trying to figure out how... How many implants and how much humanity does each of the characters actually have um, regarding this movie as well as the first one? 
because it's like Bato has uh you know he has like a long he has longer hair in this movie so obviously like some part of his head is still organic rather than in, inorganic and i mean it, it's shown like as well even in like the first one his arms are completely uh robotic and <laughs> and whereas like with togusa togusa has a mullet yeah yeah togusa still has the mullet he he, he isn't letting <laughs> that hairstyle die but I, from- I, wait what were you saying He's Riggs. He's. Li- I think he's like. He's like. This movie's like a buddy cop one kind of feel. Mm-hmm. It, it's. I, he has to be inspired by Lethal Weapon, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, I'm sure uh, the Last Duel is inspired by this movie because they got mullets in there too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with uh, Togusa, I want to say that he is mainly organic. However, he has a cybernetic brain, which is. Um, subject to hacking as well whereas with uh matoko she is completely inorganic from what i understand other than her ghost and it's a oh and then ishikawa i want to say he is mainly he's mostly organic as well um i i I, i'm going off of the anime stuff mm -hmm. i think i'm a i'm a burst i'm a burst the bubble go for it I think Bato is fully, Matoko is fully, and I think Ishikawa is probably like eighty percent to full. In the yeah, in this setting, this technology is so advanced where it's not you can't you literally can't tell the difference. And I think Togusa, the scariest thing with him is he just has like neural implants. He doesn't even have like a cybernetic brain. He just has like an uplink to the web. And his his natural brain is just as programmable as a, a fully cybernetic one. Yeah, that's that's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Cause it's and like yeah, the, wait, what were you saying? And then I think the only thing with Matoka that makes her truly different is I uh, at least in the TV series is that expand expand on her backstory is that she lost her body at like age five or four. So she has no fully conscious memories of having a human body wow and this yeah this movie made me think about like the idea like that my phone can be sentient or something or that like like as i'm constantly updating my phone i'm just like oh my god am i replacing you like every few months <laughs> or like you know like when oh well kind of spoilers right but uh, like a character gets an upgrade, you know, for their arm or like they get like something updated in their firmware and they just feel better or they feel anew or something. And I'm, and I'm just thinking to myself like, oh man, I do that to my iPhone like all the time. <laughs> so like, is that our future? <laughs> yeah, it seems like um, with each upgrade, it loses a sense of like it's, or as we progress i don't know it's weird because in that particular scene um the character in question was asking oh well what happened to my old one can i still like use the organic compounds of it and then the person was telling him no do not ever do that because it's susceptible to i want to say it creates like a lapse in the firmware or something like that 
And so it's like, okay, it, it reminds me of like that concept where like every seven years, like you're no longer the same version of yourself because all of your molecular cells have like died and been born anew over time. But it happens at a much more accelerated rate. And it just shows like the ever shifting presence of humanity. And it's like even when we're dealing with inorganic compounds, they were most likely created by the hands of humans. So does that make it any less human than, you know, that of organic material? And that's like one of my favorite uh, concepts that's explored throughout this movie, especially with the dolls in question versus the humans that or the ghosts of the humans that are being implanted into them. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to give ratings? Because I'm I'm really ready to hop in the spoilers. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Uh, I'm going to give this movie 4.5 out of 5. Just because... I mean, when I first watched it, I gave it a 3.5 out of 5 purely for the fact that I did not grasp 80% of it. <laughs> just because it was so over my head it felt so dense and so fast paced that i was i felt like i was going a million miles per minute in terms of trying to catch up with all the ideas and things that were being thrown at me but i it's this is like one of those movies that i just grow even more appreciative towards the more and more that i watch it along with the first movie too um I I dream of the day that I can watch both the first and the second movie in a theater as a double feature. That would be absolutely incredible. Um just as a as a viewing experience alone to see the dichotomy between the two because where as the first one deals with like the transference of consciousness of and like transcending the limitations of humanity, this one deals with injecting humanity into that which isn't organic and it's just such a unique way to handle a sequel and it in I, I think it's a I think it's a near perfect sequel to me because not only does it um, stand on its own but it also elevates both the original and this one to near equal heights for me and I very much appreciate that and everything that progressed between the original and this movie they decided to incorporate all of the new technologies and amplify it as you know it seems like a very natural progression and I think that after watching it a few more times I I'm changing my rating to a 4.5 rather than a 3.5 because I feel like I'm able to understand more of it as, you know, with each viewing. And this time around really changed it for me. I feel like I'm starting to finally understand uh, Matoko's presence in it from the very get-go of the movie. Um, and... Also, understanding Bato's role in both the first and the second, as well as the entire world of the unconscious and 
where we're all headed towards. And I just think that it's such a fascinating take on sci-fi as a whole, but also being grounded in the sense that it's not even about that. It's, it's like a, a religious under like a religious undertaking in a way it feels so strange but i highly 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 recommend watching this movie if you've seen the first one or are interested in watching the first one or if you just want to watch this one on your own just go for it um i'm going to give this film a 3.5 out of 5. I'm kind of with you, Kevin, in, in that, like, well, this is my first time watching it, so a lot of the content was extremely dense. It was hard for me to keep track of the th- uh, of all the, like, um, philosophical statements and all the quotes. Just, like, Everything was like thrown at me and it was kind of hard to keep up. And with that being said, I really enjoyed this film. I think it's, I think it's slightly better than the first one, but I would have to watch it. I would have to watch the first film again because it's been a minute since we've last seen it. And I did kind of forget like what happened at the end of that. I'm like, oh yeah, huh? But I didn't realize, you know, like a disappearance happened or, you know, um, that the major, well, I won't spoil anymore. I mean, we're going to get there, but yeah, I didn't realize like the, um, how uh, catastrophic the events were going to be from the first one and like how it led us to the sequel. And I just enjoyed how much more different it was. We, we get more Batu we get more development from these characters. We kind of see Balto's life. He has a dog. It's really cute. Um, I just, I really enjoyed the exploration uh, of this city that they live in and how grimy and dirty everything is. It always feels like they're being watched. I always feel like someone's being watched or like someone's keeping track of them and yeah i feel like this film now is just keeps becoming more relevant to our world today and i think it's kind of scary how closer and closer we are of like getting to this kind of realm and visualing i think i visually it's just so like stunning i love the the effects and like the action and um yeah it's not afraid to like be brutal and yeah it's a bit it's a bit gory uh, surprisingly and it's very dark the the um the story that in which like they have to you know find out why these um i guess they're almost like servants why they're like killing their masters and like they're supposed to be like sex bots and stuff like that's really um crazy how relevant that still is and that's still like you can see that's still happening today so that's my rating uh, 
I give it a five out of five. I'm biased. I just love, I love the 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 surface plot or the the through line narrative on this film a lot. Uh, but I also again, it's the first and second are so close for like there's the the narrative through line like the it's like a fun exploration of like a dystopian cyberpunk future that's it's it's unique compared to a lot of other cyberpunk media i see or like a lot of stuff still coming out is like too far in the future or it's too directly inspired by something else directly and uh yeah this is a great one where there's like a rich history that it doesn't explore until the TV series even. But there's like references in these movies where like geopolitically what the world is like in this techno future, what what are laws, what rights there are, that already exist everything's already blurred. Like uh yeah, like uh Yeah, it's just everyone no one and yeah, like society's so apathetic towards it. Like there's no like big debates or anything. It's just progressing and everyone's kind of hostage, but docile still. And yeah, it's, I just love the setting. It feels so realistic. Like, oh, it's going to be us and f maybe we'll see it or at least the early ed edges of it. If it continues like it is, maybe we'll see a nuclear world war and a non-nuclear world war. And then we'll start getting artificial bodies. And then, uh. Yeah, the spiritual angles, the quotes. Uh, I think I have a couple memorized from this. We'll see in the spoilers if I can say them right. And yeah, I just, I love Oshi's work. Probably two or three more movies from him. I want to eventually force on you guys on the pod. <laughs> but uh, yeah, five out of five. And with that said, let's uh, go right into spoilers. Public security, I'm Togusa. And my scary associate here... Must be the one who filled this girl with double-aught buck. Now, if you had used 50 caliber hollow points instead, then it would have been a simple matter to restore her. Three people were killed. And two of those were policemen. She tried to commit suicide before you shot her. Didn't she? Uh, what is it? We we cry for the bird's song, but not the fish's blood. I love that one. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like that's the quote that finally got me to understand the entirety of the argument that was being made for the dolls in general. Because that that core part of the plot like completely threw me for a loop for like the first few viewings because it's like okay I understand that there's something here that's trying to be said but my tiny brain just cannot grasp it yeah I think I kind of got it right at the end when we see Togusa and his daughter and he gives her a doll and then Batu has his dog and he's looking right at them and I'm just thinking like huh what is the comparison there between him having his dog and Togusa's daughter having her doll what's that one scene where 
Togusa and Bato go to visit the doll maker. I, I forget the character's name. Um, but that entire conversation, I feel, was laying the groundwork for what was going to be covered in the story right from the very get-go. And I... Wait, are we talking about the beginning? Like the very... Um, we're... First... I want I want to say it's like right at the third at the first third of the movie mm. where they go to investigate the the doll maker or no it wasn't the doll maker it was someone who salvages the dolls after they're I don't know I forget Haraway. is that is that the character's name yeah uh she called herself Haraway or there he kept saying like miss Haraway and she, she says oh. don't call me miss call me Haraway that's the yes. police that's right? the forensic that's that's like the forensic police lady who's mm. looking at okay. the dolls that were rec recovered. Okay, um I loved all of the points that Haraway was bringing up. Um especially in terms of how you know we view children playing with dolls and we view them like with our conditioned uh perspectives in that oh they you know they're trying to you know uh parent these these dolls as like a way of uh, programming or anything when it's like children are like the purest form of humanity and that they aren't conditioned. They simply just see things and just engage with them without any sort of preconceived notions. But um, the point that uh, that Richie made in terms of the ending with Togusa and his daughter versus Bato's relationship with, I think is the dog's name Gabrielle or uh, I don't know. Um, which I absolutely adored, the dog in this movie. Um, but the dynamic between their two relationships and why they and how they actually show affection towards these beings other than themselves, it made me think about Haraway's conversation. And she was kind of like lamenting how these dolls are being utilized for such like nefarious purposes. And I thought that that was such a. A unique takeaway because I'd, I'd never I don't know I'd, I'd never like thought about it that way and how I don't know it, it's just something I wanted to bring up what, what are both of your thoughts on that um hmm. uh, it kind of reminded me of this time when you know back at Sac State when um it's a quick short story when i found this flyer and it said fill this out you know give me the you know tell me your dorm room number and building and we'll bring you some free cookies i'm like cool i have a friend who lives on campus i'll ask her if i can do this and so i did and i was like i want some snickerdoodle so then i went back to her dorm room and then like about maybe 15, like 20 minutes later, they came up and they had snickerdoodle cookies. And then they were like, oh, it's Richard here. And I was like, yeah, that's me. They gave me the cookies. And then he started to talk to me about, you know, Christianity and stuff. And we had like this little conversation. And then I was asking him like, hey, so like, you know, like we all have souls and stuff. And, you know, talk about how like when we die that we'll like, you know, go to heaven if, you know. Like, even if we had all these sins, like, if if God is willing to forgive us, he'll take us to heaven. And I was saying, like, well, what about animals? Or, like, what about dogs? You know, they have some consciousness. 
you know, like us, don't they have souls? Where do they go? And he, he was stumped. Like he couldn't like tell me or like, you know, he was saying how, I guess us human beings, like, I guess we're supposed to be special or something or like we just operate differently. He couldn't really give like a great answer, but obviously I wasn't looking for like this, you know, great calculated answer for that. But tying it back to the film um, and how like we as humanity like have turned dogs into like our domesticated like pets. We can breed them to our own will, you know, you can create different types of um, dogs, you know, you can mix them together and same with dolls, right? You can, I think. I don't remember, but like, I think dolls used to be more sacred or they're kind of more decorative. And now like, you can play with dolls now, right? So like, you can turn them into toys. But now like in the film, like, you can inject a soul into them. So like, does that make them just like us, you know? Or are they human or as human as we are? Uh, but the ending for me, I do. Yeah, you. It's yeah. It's. I think it's meant to clearly make you reference Haraway's, like challenging, like the philosophy, the philosophy context of the progression of life, and then a little side. I really like that when they leave, Bato remarks that uh, she must argue on forms a lot, <laughs> just like me. I was like, oh, I that's such a. I don't. I think I know any other media and this is like back in 04 that like f exposes or like shows the ideas like as the internet and form stuff is more normalized are you exposing you know, yourself Pat well there's I, I've posted like I've posted about <laughs> ghosts in the shell on forums so. <laughs> and there's been other people posting on forums where like in a generation or two we're gonna have a president who was arguing on forums a billion percent mm -hmm. we're gonna have you know detectives there's gonna be everyone's gonna <laughs> have conventional lives if those are still options in the future but they'll still have like the history of internet upbringing which involves like form dis discourse i just really found that i really found that endearing of like oh damn that's funny i argue about films on forums i used <laughs> to be a lot more active on that we become uh Keyboard warriors, as they call yeah. it. In the future, the keyboard's going to be in your brain, so everyone will be one, I bet. But yeah, uh, the ending with uh, Togusa's daughter, and then the daughter holding the doll, and then a little zoom in on the doll's eyes, and then we go to Bato. I took it as Bato. It's a film that ends with like the main character looking at the audience, so it's breaking the fourth wall. And I feel like it's like challenging you to think of Haraway's point about, you know, people say kids play with dolls to like practice maternal instincts or paternal instincts to be, you know, parents or whatever, play family. And she argues like, no, the the creation of a child is like the inherent God complex humanity has to create life. And it's like something beyond our current ability. But yeah, it's like an aspiration to achieve God's powers. And that's what kids actually are. And Togusa gets offended. 
But in the final scene, we see Togusa with his. According to Haraway, would be his daughter, which is like his attempt to play God, which creates his daughter in the next generation and a new soul. And then his daughter has a doll, which in the world of Ghost in the Shell, like with the, the gynoid dolls that are illegally being given like 12 year old souls, souls imprinted on them to make them like, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really seedy, but yeah, they're these things are having their souls injected to them. I think it's challenging the audience to think about the possibility that we can progress to that level where the human will be replaced completely, not in a matrix way, but like in a natural progression of like a transhumanist, just, yeah, you get a soul imprinted. You're not born like in another hundred years in the ghost in the shell universe, there may be no humans left. <laughs> That's the vibe I got at least. It's Maybe just, there yeah. will be a little cult of people who are like all organic and like no modifications <laughs> and like because i don't know i want to be fully bare like i don't i don't want any implants in me or you know to turn my brain into a computer you know what if what if they had that you know do they have that in the series where people are like no i don't want to i don't want to be a robot i think there are people like that but i think the series embraces like mm. modern like to get a job now, if you're born anywhere after 2010, you're going to have to have like an online presence, which is like the creation of a second psychosis or not psychosis, a second self that exists mm. on the Internet. And kids are already grown up with that being the only option to progress in society. So I could see robots just slowly doing the same thing, maybe. One of the right. takes that, oh, uh, go go for it, Pat. I, I I didn't even have a point. I was just rambling more. You're good. Uh, <laughs> uh, one one thing that sort of came to mind during um, uh, you know, our discussion about that final, the final two frames of the movie where it's the doll and then Togusa looking at the doll, it reminded me of the common or of the recurring motif of the discussion of mirror of mirrors in this in this movie, and. It's weird seeing how I think you mentioned it earlier, Pat, how like three of the main characters bring up like this, you know, their own like philosophical saying or uh, quotes on mirrors and how they each have like unique perspective on it. And Bato's, I want to say that his was um, if you don't like what you see in the mirror, don't or um, don't blame the mirror for something that you don't like seeing or something along the lines of that and i you know with the juxtaposition of him looking at the doll and then the doll looking back at him it just reminded me of that same mirror motif because it's like okay did bato change at all like i get this i get this common um feeling whenever i think about bato and that he's not entirely proud or he's not entirely satisfied with who he is as a person anymore and that he's kind of um recoiled a bit into his shell in a way where the only things that make him a human anymore are his ghost and also his his memories of Matoko because clearly 
Like it, it's something that was like underlined throughout, or, or I want to say underscored in the first movie is his uh, sentiments towards Matoko. Like there's there's like tiny moments where he places the coat on on her naked body, even though to Matoko she isn't even concerned about that. She only views the body as like a disposable vessel. So the the sexuality that's you know projected onto the body, she doesn't even think about that. But to Bato, he still has like that same like um, caring and nurturing instinct to protect her because he cares about her. And we get that with his relationship with this Basset Hound in this movie, and that he you know he comes home from a very a very uh, violent day and he, you know, boils up this meal for his dog. Like it's all organic food for his dog as well. Whereas he just sits on the couch and doesn't even eat anything. He just drinks. And so when we finally do get his, do get exposed to Matoko and, you know, once again, she's in like this body that's, that's naked. Once again, he places his vest onto her and I feel like whenever Bato looks into the figurative mirror, he only sees pain and that he didn't ever get to hold on to the things that made him human. For instance, with Matoko, like she completely transgresses humanity in the first film. And then we see him in the second one without that, without her anymore, like he lost her. And in this movie, he is trying to like hold on to that. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is when he sees the doll, does he have like a complete like newfound appreciation for what it means to be human? Because if dolls are created in the image of humans, doesn't that just make them another human, but in a different form? And with him being almost entirely cybernetic and does he have like a newfound fulfillment when it comes to his own existence? It, in that scene where we get that, you know, close up shot, like that kind of like long shot of like the doll and then, and then of Batu, like it almost felt kind of uncanny, like kind of strange in a way. Like, I like the, I don't know, it came off like the Kubrick stare vibe. I'm like, oh, they're really holding on to this shot for a minute. And I'm, we're just like, you know, like looks straight at us, right? And it felt very, um, I don't know, I've, it came off like a psychological approach. Like maybe he is thinking that like this doll could be just like me or I'm just like it. Um, Other detail especially with the doll the and can't the blue eyes and then can stare i can't help but feel that's like a direct reference to matoko because in the first movie you know the blue eyes when she is incarnated in this movie again blue eyes there's a shot on the eyes mm. when uh, matoko leaves and the body collapses it's that great shot of the eyes on the floor looking up or no looking vacant and then yeah the doll's the same thing all right i got I got vibes of there's a bit of Matoko even in this little doll and he's seeing it and back to the 
the love angle. It feels like, uh, yeah, it's a bitter, it's a bitter love story. It's no happy ending for Bato. See, I, I want to throw a counterpoint to that just for the sake of like discussion. Um, going back to the very beginning of the movie um, and Matoko's role in this movie, I feel like from the very get go, her her presence is missed, obviously. But throughout the movie, we get like little hints of her trying to get through to Bato. Um, there's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when Bato uh, goes into the convenience store to get more dog food for uh, Gap for Gabriel, and there I I want to say that there was like a whisper. Yeah, he felt like a whisper in his ghost. Yeah. Um, warning him about like a, a hacking attempt. And I didn't ever catch it like the first few times that I watched it, but this time I was it came through to me finally. And I was like thinking, like, damn, like it it was really been here all along. Like, I mean, obviously it could just be um Bato's representation of Matoko in a way, or it could just be a simple whisper in his ghost. Um, that isn't linked to Matoko, but even during the hacking attempt uh, at the Locust um, Manor, I forget what it's called, but, uh, you know, obviously Matoko is there in the body that she was given in the final sequence of the original movie. And there was also um, unique ways that she was trying to get through to him to warn him, saying that... Um, you know, with truth versus death, and then also the code of two five. It was it two five zero one. Yeah, I'm glad you caught that. I love that detail. Yeah, like I that completely flew over my head because that that was uh, dispersed in the first movie. Like that's their code um, between the entire Section Nine crew for like some sort of um. No, it's the it's the puppet master. Oh yeah, it's the puppet master code, yeah. right? Project two five zero one. Yeah, and like once I saw that, I'm like, oh my god! Like it's Matoko. Like she's, she's, she's ever present. You know, as long as, and that's why I kind of like, you know, going back to the point, um, the last line that she says to Bato, or one of the last lines is, whenever you, whenever you're connected to the net, I will always be with you. And I found <laughs> that to be like so damn touching because it's like, it's you know it's even in our everyday lives, like when, when a loved one passes away, like there's that common sentiment that gets delivered to people where, Oh, you know, like, Oh, they must be like watching overhead. And you know, that's getting into like a more uh, Christian view of it all. But I, I loved this take on the movie because it sort of transcends the limitations or it transcends the superficiality of, um, cyberpunk and sci-fi and, uh, all of these other genres by showing how this completely inorganic being minus the, the ghost that was implanted into Matoko, she still is human despite not having been in a body for a few years and only exists in the net. But whenever Bato is there, she's always there with him. And Although, like, she is so disconnected from humanity, 
there's still that link between her and Bato that keeps her coming back. And I found that to be like such a, it was so touching to me because it feels like sort of an all encompassing form of love. Like it, it goes beyond the, the typical ladder of love, like, um, you know, that being physical and obviously like a, a visual attraction and platonic love. Like it goes above all, all of that to just the complete love and acceptance of another being for their ghost in a way for their soul. And it's, I just love that added element to the movie. It that's the that's what makes the movie for me, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree completely. But I do still think it's bitter for Bato, because again, like in the first movie, it's uh he's projecting the old way or the old concepts onto Matoko and her absence or like, yeah. That's uh, yeah. There's no doubt like she's she literally moves the whole narrative along either literally like intervening and helping or like her non her non-physical memory is like and then even then it blurs the line between like how much like how fluid that is in this world of like uh like the the shootout scene in the liquor store or the the small grocery store where it's like she could have hacked in and spoke to him or you could have just remembered or just felt her voice or felt a warning. It's never too explicit. It's just what we only hear her say, like, you've entered the kill zone, hinting that he's walked into an ambush. But we don't know if that's like him feeling it or his ghost, his own soul or ghost feeling it or thinking it, or if it's her literally like using the net to enter and warn him. And uh, yeah, I think, yeah, back to the original point, it just feels like I feel like it's bitter for Bato because he like he he wants to put the jacket on her. He wants like the mutual coexistence, but Matoko's already transcended humanity and she has nothing but love for Bato, but it's not, you know, like a conventional, it's like a new thing. And I'm sure he appreciates, appreciates it and is aware of it. But yeah, it just feels, feels kind of grim for Bato. Every time I think about it, it just feels like he's, He's going through the motions of life now that Matoko's gone for sure. Like you he know, has when, a dog. When you say she, she's transcended, uh, I can't help but to think like, yeah, I mean, she, it seems like she's transcended death or that she's become like this godlike presence. Yeah, and touching on that point, Richie, um, the first movie... I feel like that one focuses more on death rather than this movie focusing on life, which gets me back to thinking that these two are two sides of the same coin and that one can't exist without the other. Um, and with Matoko transcending death in a way, or I guess the, the physical limitations of a human body, it allows Matoko to like enter the next stage of consciousness in a way, but she also still holds on to like a small fragment of that stage that came before, which, you know, um, when Pat saying like, it, it's very grim for Bato, like I agree it is too. And 
I, I think it's great that like Bato can recognize his own limitations to understand that he has to let Matoko go. And the fact that we don't even get a full version of Matoko, um, you know, going back to the point that Richie made of like, oh, like if if you had seen this movie nine years after the original in theaters and not seeing Matoko in it at all. Oh, God. <laughs> like I would have a very ambivalent uh, reaction to that because it's like we don't get Matoko in her like we don't get her normal face. We get the gynoid bot and she even touches on it where, oh, like this this uh, gynoid bot doesn't even have like my full consciousness in it. it like its memory is so limited that, you know, like 80 or 90 percent of it is is uh, full on just my combat abilities. Like it doesn't even have like my full personality. So I apologize for my voice or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's such a revisionistic take on the sequel. Just, I guess the idea of a sequel to a groundbreaking original movie. And it's like, we don't even like imagine being in Bato's position of losing the one person who you love dearly. And then meeting them again a few years later, but in just a completely unrecognizable form and a very limited one at that. Like you don't even get the full spectrum of them and only for like, what, like a half hour and then they're gone again. And they say, they say that great line <laughs> and then there's a long silence and then they say, I'm leaving now. And then they just leave. Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know if this was intentional from Oshi, but um, I think like this film kind of subverts the idea of like the male gaze. Because like what you said, Kevin, like she doesn't even have a physical form anymore. Being that she and she's also like she used to be like this what female inorganic, um, this like cyborg, you know. So like the idea of like having a human body or even like wearing clothes doesn't even matter anymore right because she's just this like she's just transcended all that so like today people can't people can't objectify her anymore she's just this like godlike presence like she's not even like a being in that kind of sense like a physical being and the moment in which she comes back as one of those um, bots just to help him fight off um, the the army of uh, cyborgs. And then he puts like a, a coat on, on her. I thought that was a really touching. And it almost kind of humanizes her in a way when he did that. We talk about the I want to talk about the because we've we've been getting on the deeper side of the movie. But I do want to just mention quickly, I love the again, like the first movie. I love the the main plot through line narrative of yeah, the these like servant droids or uh dolls. I think they're maybe like I don't know if they're like tea servers or something. But they have mm -hmm. a certain aesthetic and they're uh 
they're killing their owners in like some kind of unknown defect or hacking attempts. And uh, then it's the investigation pursues for further and it's revealed that they're actually secretly sex bots for the elite or the friends of the business owners. And then there's something fishy about the consciousness that they put in there. And then, yeah, just it it's such a fun not fun, but it's such a grim. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, it was pretty nefarious behind what the consciousness was, right? I mean, was, I mean, yeah, but exploring it was, it's fun. It's not just yeah. like, oh my god, there's there's a soul in a robot. What are we gonna do? It's, it's not surface level. Like a lot of cyberpunk is so small brained. Like even the secondary plot kind of in this, I feels ahead of a lot of other things. Where it's like, right. yeah, it's like a, it's like a it's a window into corporate exploitation and like yeah just but then you find out these souls are from these children yeah kidnapped that were being kidnapped but like i find it kind of also kind of disheartening where like bato criticizes the child like no you don't so you don't think anything of them like killing themselves like don't they have you know, because he was trying to say, like, don't they have autonomy too? you know? <clears throat> and then she responds like, well, I didn't want to turn into one of them, you know? That's where Yamatoko drops. We cry for, for the bird song, but not the fish's blood, Richie. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I must it are those with the voices. But she, well, how old is she? Like 10 or like 11? Like, <laughs> how could she have known? You know, was that the right time to like, I don't know. Like, no, yeah, it's, yeah. I just think it's crazy that uh, these these young girls were, you know, I, f I forget where they were told or where they were or who instructed them to do so to create that glitch in the programming of the ghost to <laughs> lash out against its lash out against the owners to draw attention to it. Yeah, um, like, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, like, Pat, I, I completely agree with the the stature of this secondary plot in the movie i i think that it is completely inventive and it seems like a natural progression of things to come because it's like even in our own reality right now human trafficking is such an it, it it's it just exists like it, and it's existed for for who knows how long and it just continues to be a thing and this seems like a natural step in that direction in this timeline um it seems like with the mass production of these gynoid t servers this would be a logical thing for you know these mass corporations to do because in this world it's a very dystopian capitalistic like late stage capitalism um setting and for these poor girls to be kidnapped and have like their souls implanted into these dolls they to them they view it as like exploitation of themselves which it absolutely is but going back to that magnificent quote of um oh we 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 lament over the bird song versus the versus the fishes it it's such a unique t take on futuristic uh, steps in the evolutionary process because it's like oh but don't these dolls have rights too like 
wouldn't wouldn't the dolls be screaming out that we got wouldn't they be screaming out against becoming human like what if they didn't want the the ghosts implanted in them it's like it's such a unique take on it and i love that because it's like dolls are you know they're created in the in the image of human it's like it it create it opens up this whole other door of consciousness and sentience for what we would deem inorganic or uh, inanimate objects because it's like if they stemmed from the original creator doesn't that make it linked in some way and i just like all these dolls like went off like against their own will to kill these other people and like there's that wonderful i mean there's that one crazy scene of the of the gynoid um bot once the once there's a security breach it uh goes out and starts like decapitating all of these soldiers and they're just they just recoil in horror watching this like take place and the doll's body is just getting mangled against its own will due to the uh due to the programming of the ghost of these of these little girls like trying to reach out for help it's like such a it has like such a machiavellian feel to it of do the ends like justify the means and I love that discourse of the movie because it's like, yes, these are things we should be discussing before they actually happen. Like if if and when these things do happen, how will we respond to it? You you brought up a detail I really wanted to touch upon. Or yeah, the the dolls in the factory after Bato infiltrates it. Uh, they are hacked by Matoko and giving like combat combat programming and orders to essentially just kill everything on the offshore factory which is like immune to it's like has uh what is it, international waters so there's no law so they're allowed to just do this even if they were to get caught because mm-hmm. there's no and, jurisdiction yeah and then yeah so she's the one who programs the 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 gynoids to rise up it's this great scene but also towards the end again I think it does touch on where she's transcended humanity and she it's like a grim uh how do I say this she says the line about the you know the gynoids would have wished to not be human uh blessed are those with voices but it feels like she's aware that she's essentially killed all the dolls too and programming them to rise up and kill like the the security forces and help them get to the free the kidnapped children. It's also a cost them to sacrifice themselves. And she's inhabiting the final like living gynoid and the the final one of those creations. And then yeah, she she coldly says like I'm leaving now. And then she turns herself off. And then the the empty vessel is like the last one. It's like the final genocide death of like a a certain thing that existed for a brief moment in time in the whole universe. And she's just like, yeah, disconnects. And then the there's a recurring quote in the movie of uh, we're like a puppet. On strings and like our life is the last thread, I believe. And then we collapse. And yeah, Matoko leaves the final gynoid killing it, I assume, or just deactivating it. And then it does like a great 
spin fall. And it, I swear to God, like one of the shoulders stays up like there's a string holding it and it's completely intentional. I'm not crazy. And yeah, I just <laughs> and yeah, there's the music score. The camera zooms in on the face of the empty vessel that's now dead. The whole race is dead. And yeah, it's like a it's a brutal. Disheartening, cold future. <laughs> you know, I think, Pat, you bring up an excellent point with that, because I'm just now like thinking back to the Yakuza scene where Bato and um, oh gosh, Togusa infiltrate it. And then at the very end of that scene, Bato uh, ends up, I forget, using, they're like, he uses a, a ghost hacking tool at the back or at the base of the um, neck of one of the Yakuza members. And then you could see the strings attached to it. And then he like does some, he like maneuvers some of the controls on it to uh, control the Yakuza member. And then he finally like extinguishes it. And then you could see like the threads collapse. And oh yeah, Pat, that's a really good point. He's thought of everything. Isn't the soul extracted from the back of the neck too? And like everyone's ports are there. Yeah, and even I, yeah, that's like a that ha happens as well um, in the locust scene where uh, oh yeah, we haven't even talked about that part. <laughs> I mean that much where um where the endless loop of a uh, of the ghost hacking happens, and then Togusa yeah. ends up being the one who has the uh that device implanted at the back of his or at the base of his neck, and then Bato in the convenience store. Yeah, I was kind of confused at first in that convenience store scene because, like, yes, we find out that he was hacked, right? But I was wondering, like, wait, what is going on? Who is he shooting at? Or is he shooting at himself? And then he goes up to the like, the the shop owner and he's about to shoot him, too. So I was so confused. I was like, wait, what's going on? But, like, even right before that, we get... um Motoko, I believe it's Motoko, right? Who said, like, you've now entered the kill zone or something. And, yeah. And that whole sequence happened. And, yeah, I was worried, like, oh, man, is, is everyone in that store, like, following him? Like, the way it was framed and the way it was shot, everything was going in slow motion. I thought, like, wait, like, are they all going to kill him? What's going on? And then, yeah, it turned out he was hacked. That was the yeah, that's the first, I think, false memory or false reality we see in the film. That yeah, Bato perceives that there's like an unseeable gunman. He doesn't know who it is in the store who's shooting at him. And then he just sees someone with a gun and he goes to shoot them, and then he is stopped, and then it's revealed that all, all that was imaginary. He literally just shot himself in the arm like five times and then went to kill someone at, because he was hacked to perceive that he was under attack. And then, yeah, later we go to the mansion of like an arms dealer hacker who works with the Locust Company. And yeah, we get a great. It's it's. God, this episode's going to be long. <laughs> it's going to be. It's a great. It's like a how long do you think it is? But it's like a long. I'd say it's like 15 minutes, I want to say that in that yeah. sequence. Yeah, I'd say about 10, 10, 15. Yeah, and it's like a great even still watch it. I don't know where I know they I know there's a place where they say the false memories begin, 
but I still feel like there's stuff on the build up to them walking to the mansion where it's like, well, okay, maybe it starts here. Maybe here they're, they stop perceiving reality for reality and they're, they're being hacked remotely because like, yeah, when Makoto or Matoko's the, there's the doll from the first movie next to the, I think it's a basset hound, which is mm-hmm. his dog. Yeah. Like at the entry of the stairs, it's like, oh, is that Matoko's hint? Is she inside his already hacked brain, leaving a hint for him? Like, how'd that get put there? Is any of that real? Is the mansion real? Or is it because we only see the one room after they finally break free? I don't know. It's it's such a trippy scene. It's hard to talk about without we're going to like walk through it. Yeah, like frame by frame. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even like before that, there's um, there's the conversation. I want to say that they're in the car or I don't know. I could be wrong, but it's between Bato and Togusa. And Togusa is basically worrying about um, going back to his family. And uh, Bato is like exploring the notion like, oh, well, what if you go back to your home and there's nobody there? Like, what if it was all just implanted by somebody? You know, it's all just false memories of you, you know, and basically you're a single person living at home with this false memory of a wife and a child. And it's reminiscent of the puppet master in the original movie mm-hmm. and the the dump was it the dump truck driver who okay. yeah yeah who makes the call and like they have like this memory of, it's like a photograph of him and his family i, I want to say and mm-hmm. then when they're being interrogated they're you know it's revealed that oh you know like this was all completely falsified like these people do not exist and i love that callback because it's like, oh, that's constantly underscoring their existence, which brings me to like the next thing I want to talk about. And I want to hear more about this um, from Pat, because I know that you've brought up brought up this before of the was it the Sim Simac Simul? I, I don't know. It's it, it's in regards to Baudrillard. Oh, yeah. Simulacra. And, yeah. Simulacra. I, w- I want to hear more about that in tandem with this, because like. I've been having some very uncanny moments in my own life, like in the past like few weeks, and I've just been like thinking back to, oh my god, like, is is this the idea that Baudrillard was getting at? Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is gonna get this is gonna get sad, <laughs> but we 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 don't live in reality is the summation of it all. Uh, yeah, we we literally don't live in reality anymore. And yeah, Ghost in the Shells, it's with the the narrative stuff of false memories and exploring the subjectivity of consciousness and bodies and what it means and all that. In a techno future, Baudrillard with the uh, simulacra or simulacra, I forgot how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah, it's the concept that the simulation we experience is in di- it's not be able to if it if the simulation we experience elicits an identical response to the reality of like I use the great example of uh, when like a kid pretends to be sick and we've all done this I hope because I've done this but yeah you pretend to be sick to get out of going to school but you're made to stay in bed by like a parent and then you start to kind of feel sick and yeah he would argue that if a simulation is able to elicit the same response as the reality would the simulation is as real as reality and that 
that that back and forth exchange blurs the whole line between whatever we can perceive as reality as being reality. And yeah, just we're surrounded by that so much now in like media, news, TV, everything Disney, everything Marvel, even movies that are like artsy. There's like an undercurrent of hyper reality impending on us. And yeah, I think maybe our generation or the generation after us is it's grown up only in hyper reality and it's kind of maybe over, <laughs> maybe over a little bit. But yeah, Ghost of the Shell lines up really strongly with, I believe, that theory. And going back to the first Ghost in the Shell was a big influence for The Matrix. Uh, and The Matrix, they even have, I think, simula Simulacra and Simulations. The book by Baudrillard is like in Neo's hacker den. And yeah, it's just. It's like the, even this even this film trilogy is like a loop of like Baudrillard's philosophy on reality and hyper reality and simulacra and simulations and how nebulous it all is in our experiences and lives. And then, yeah, it goes to Ghost in the Shell and then it goes to the Matrix and then it goes back to Ghost in the Shell in this movie. I'm sorry if I ranted or rambled a lot. <laughs> no, 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 not fine. no, um, you know, this idea of the simulacrum, it reminds me of Plato's world of forms and that mm. In the world of forms, there is a complete likeness or a complete. Um, it's it's basically the, the real version of whatever it is that you're trying to represent or I guess taken from your own reality. For instance, there in this world of forms, there is a perfect version of a cup, whereas in our realities that we only can take in what's given to us. And it's a completely imperfect version of a, of a cup or a tree even. And it's reminding me a lot of the simulacrum because I want to say that if I'm getting it right, the simulacrum is basically um, a small representation of something, um, but it can never touch upon the real thing. Is is that kind of what it's like, Pat? Or It can never touch upon the real thing, and I think he would also argue the difference between like the Plato true form, like a hyper real object doesn't require the hyper real oh, form. It just because, exists in itself. And then that means oh the hyper real form is absent. <laughs> Holy shit. So yeah, if it, yeah, if it, if it exists and you perceive it a certain way, it is that way. And the true form is unobtainable because we can't perceive it. And there's no point in talking about it essentially. That just leads me down like a, a mental rabbit hole of like even just memories as a whole because and I'm I'm kind of like um, thinking back to the opening sequence of this movie versus the original movie um, like with the original we get the construction of Matoko's body like a completely new version of herself whereas with this one we get the image of the scene from the original where Matoko is diving underwater and coming close to seeing herself in the in almost like a mirror of a uh, you know below the surface of the water and then when the two converge that's when you get the ghost that's when you get the soul and like the essence of the human being but um with this talk of like the simulacrum sorry i keep mispronouncing it and the world of forms and um 
even what it means to have a consciousness, it reminds me of a logarithmic scale and that you can never touch upon the true zero. Like you can, you can consistently uh, be far, like completely distanced from it and come as close to zero as you possibly can, but you can never cross that threshold of understanding what is true and what is real versus what is not. And that's like, is that something that we just have to accept in our own existence? Or is that something that can be transcended in a way? I don't know. Yeah, it's grim. I, I look to when Theodore Kaczynski in the final conflict he mentions as maybe an out, but outside of that, uh, it seems like we're locked in. And we're, we're on the path to the ghost in the shell future, or maybe something worse or slightly less worse. What was uh, that final take on, on uh, Kaczynski? Yeah, he talks about the final conflict between technology, which has usurped capital and is a, an existent force upon itself that controls the higher structures of organization that us humans exist under. The final conflict is between that technology concept and the human it's itself. And the end result will either be the victory of humanity over technology or the extinction of humanity and the subjugation to something less than. And yeah, that's why he went crazy and <laughs> tried to bomb people. Jesus. I mean, if you're like weighing with like that sort of existential dread between the two oh my god Ugh. that seems maddening and there's an mk ultra angle maybe and uh yeah other stuff okay may have drunk yeah they may have driven crazy did he was he the one that drank some of the water too i i don't know about those conspiracy theories fully but there's some Wait, connection MK, well i thought mk ultra was a real thing it's not a conspiracy no, it's a real thing, but I'm talking about like Kaczynski's connection prior to uh, it, snapping and carrying out the bombings. You know, I um, I recently finished reading Dune, and mm. in the appendix in the appendices, uh, I was reading about um this war that took place. I want to say like between five to ten thousand years before the events of Dune takes place. And the war was basically waged against technology and computers. And these people had a very uh, traditional sense that humans should not create machines that are capable of thinking like humans. And it's like such a unique um, uh, angle in contrast to that of Ghost in the Shell where computers like they take on a mind of their own to becoming more human than human. And it's like such a, I don't know. It, to me, it's a very unique um, comparison between Dune's stance on technology and like completely wiping it out of existence other than the Bene Gesserit who have like a hidden set of like computers to keep track of like their breeding throughout the universe it's like technology is very esoteric in 
Dune's universe, whereas in Ghost in the Shell's universe, it's so ingrained, like it would not exist without it. And it's making me think about like this, um, what you were just talking about, Pat, in humanity's in humanity's role versus that of technology. It's like either we succumb to it or we completely ditch it altogether in a, in a sense. Um, oh man, my mind. <laughs> wow, like my mind's getting blown right now. We're already cybernized. We're already cybernized too. I know I have a cybernetic aspect, not physically, but in the online internet <laughs> sphere. Just, there is no there. There's a, if you have any social media or interactions online, you're subtly creating a second consciousness or self mm. that exists online. So, so we have uh, multiple selves, essentially a multiple self, yes, or an invisible self. Especially yeah. when, I mean, especially if marketing gets introduced into that aspect as well, it's like there's a whole other constructed side to us that is cr created by corporations even in order to get us to click upon things. And I, I feel like there's a movie that we absolutely have to discuss on here just to com to complete this circle of uh, discussion, and that's Perfect Blue, because that goes... Mm completely into the online persona and how it contrasts with that of the self and what we think to believe the self and yeah for anyone who enjoyed ghost in the shell innocence or the first one check out perfect blue because that i mean it's not for everyone because it is completely grim and there's some very troubling and dark scenes in it but if you have any sort of fascination with um, the online persona, definitely check out Perfect Blue. That's a good example. Real quick again. The hyper-reality, Perfect Blue is a perfect one where it's a character is struggling with an existing hyper-reality of themselves because they're in a, they present themselves to a larger sphere of people and that creates a simulation for those people of who that person is and that is yeah, which one's reality if that if that person if that celebrity is the construct in your mind of them is as existent as they are to themselves because there's no true form that we can observe of their soul or essence it's just their perceptive of themselves versus the larger society's perception of them Without spoiling it, I hope I didn't spoil it. <laughs> I don't think you did. Okay. I think we kind of... I think I'm running out of gas. <laughs> yeah, like my, my mind can only take so much <laughs> drilling. <laughs> yeah, for me, I don't get anything, so I'm good. <laughs> we're just like over here dying <laughs> yeah so, let, let a what is that let a man walk alone what's the rest <laughs> of the phrase oh into the forest or yeah. something and then an elephant something yeah i don't yeah. get it let a let an elephant exist or let something do no evil let yeah, it live oh, that alone is. in the forest 
Like Let a man walk alone. Let him have no evils. And ah, there's one more line about something, and then about three wishes or something. No, it's it, it's something. It's like let a man walk alone. Let him have no wishes, no evil, like an elephant in the forest. The way an elephant walks through a forest, like a transcendental elephant wisdom of contentment. Maybe that's the answer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's let it, it comes from a um it's, it's called uh the elephant poem by Gautama Buddha or by the Buddha, of course. Um and there's like a section in it that says um oh gosh. I just had it. Oh, uh it is better to live alone. There is no companionship with a fool. Let a man walk alone. Let him commit no sin with few wishes like an elephant in the forest. That's such a good one. I hope all this is a testament and an encouragement to check out the movie if you haven't already. Absolutely. Is there any uh, closing thoughts? Do no evil. That's the best thing we can do. Live in accordance with nature, with each other. Do not inflict ill will upon anything. Live like an elephant in the forest. <laughs> um, take care of your soul. Fulfill everything that your invisible self desires, because that is your true self. And, uh, all right. I think that concludes today's episode. Uh, see everyone next time for our next episode. And uh, thank you for listening. Let a man walk alone. Let him commit no sin. Let him have few wishes. Like an elephant in the forest. Bato, don't forget. Whenever you access the net, I'll be there right by your side. I'm leaving. <laughs>